ISIS leader al-Baghdadi blows himself up, allegedly with a few children in tow. Some impressive signs of hope from the youth here in America. And we have just 18 more working days to wait to see how many hardworking Americans President Trump will chuck under the bus to shift the narrative away from impeachment. Welcome to The American Centrist, Episode 5. We've found some signs of hope in the world, and then we'll just lay odds on how bad it can get from there. I'm your host, Lou. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your input as we develop this conversation. So please keep sharing your ideas with us. Let us know what you think and what you think's being ignored. You can do so at CentristPod on Twitter and, of course, our website, TheAmericanCentrist.com. You've already been on your phone all day. May as well do something productive. So why don't you subscribe? Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast provider of choice. With me, of course, are co-hosts Jeff and Dave. They're here to help us understand some of these political maneuverings and give some perspective from the right and the left. Jeff, Dave, thanks for joining. Hey, good to hear from you, Lou. Always good to be here. So I had planned on getting straight into this article that Jeff shared early in the week. Then due to a military raid and allegedly self-inflicted explosion, one of the most wanted terrorists in the world is dead. So let's start there. Uh, but before we get into the political maneuverings of it, I think just collectively, there were a lot of uh, a lot of service members who put themselves at great risk to do this. So I'd like to just thank them. Uh, and and Jeff, let me ask you this: In regard to the pullout, how much did our presence in Syria help with getting the intel that allowed this raid to happen? Well, there have been several stories this week that. Um that having that presence in Syria is is what made this really possible and that the quick exit uh, decided by uh, President Trump uh, really put pressure on the whole mission, that, that they've had an eye on Baghdadi for a while. Uh, they thought they knew his location, and as they were narrowing in on him, uh, Trump all of a sudden pulled the plug on, on having our troops in Syria uh, which greatly jeopardized the whole operation. And uh, so that that's just kind of an interesting sidebar. Um, and then, of course, he gets on, you know, in front of the uh, cameras, and you would think that he was the only person working on the mission. Um, and th- there was there was a tweet today that was from 2012 when, when he tweeted that someone had better stop Obama from taking all this credit for getting bin Laden. So true to form, there is a tweet that is diametrically opposed to exactly what he is doing at this moment. There's always a tweet. (laughs) Look, I think that the the speed with which the Times story came out and said that uh, the troop movements uh, put pressure on the United States to to go forward with this action is is pretty pretty telling. It, It suggests to me that folks at the NSC are at State Department and the Defense Department were uh, fairly comfortable talking on background to reporters about that. So I, I, I was a little surprised to see that. I do think there's a bigger uh, lesson here, though, which is that if there's ever a time when the country can kind of come together around something, this is one of those, these types of events are one of those times. And so uh, I understand everybody's got to retreat to their corners and start firing away, but I, I think a few moments of reflection about a uh, the, the bravery and the her- heroicism of our of our special operators in the region sounds like the um, 
these uh, very well-trained military dogs uh, played a role. And, and you know, the, the White House was obviously functioning well enough to, to you know, basically move forward with the approvals and, and to, you know, kind of do what they needed to do uh, to support the mission and the effort. So I think, um, you know, it's there aren't very many times when the country could come together around something, you know, positive that's happened that protects our country, that, you know, puts a, a serious dent in terrorist activity. And and it's one of those times I think we can climb down off the partisan wall and, and actually you know, say, hey, this is, you know, good job by all who were involved. No, I, I think that's right. I, I also think you made an interesting point about how quickly the story uh, got out about uh, the president's decision on Syria. The other thing that is interesting when you look backwards now is that when you see the reaction that the Pentagon had to pulling out of Syria and and how public that was and how negative that was, uh, there might have been a few people that knew there was stuff going on, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on that we don't know about and won't know about. Um, but that is a that is a geographic location that is that is super important uh, for a lot of different reasons, and uh, I think that the decision to pull out kind of on on short notice and and not just to not to bring troops home and we talked about this before but just to repurpose them into Saudi Arabia or somewhere else you, you just kind of scratch your head and say what are what are the president's priorities here so let me, let me ask you guys this and 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 Dave maybe you can start us off here as we're pulling the troops out and then with Baghdadi dead there's potentially a power vacuum mm-hmm. what starts to happen in northern Syria with uh ISIS kind of hurt and and us moving out. Well, the power vacuum was going to be there regardless of what happened with Baghdadi. Baghdadi is not a a, a power center it, regionally there. He is a representative of a movement, but all of his land has been taken. So he's not I don't think he's a tra- strategic factor in the the actual geography there. He was just hiding uh, in a in a place. The power vacuum is going to be basically what we'll see now is Russia move to exert more influence, supporting Assad, uh, you know, the brutal, murderous dictator of Syria who, you know, is going to consolidate power from this. The real question now is going to become, in part, what happens to these, to these oil resources, which had been. I think I think I've heard uh, it said that they there is revenue that could be up to fifty million dollars a day coming from those. Um, coming from those oil fields and those revenues, I don't know if it's been operating at that level uh, of late, but those revenues had been supporting the, uh, the SDF, the Kurds, uh, who we've, who have been our partners in the region. So uh, it, it appears as though the defense secretary said today that, uh, that we were moving to kind of secure those oil fields. And that meant in part to preserve them for uh, the funding stream that they now provide to the to the Kurds, but also to prevent uh, the Russian and Syrian uh, government from taking them and having access to those resources. So that that's what we're going to see play out here in the next couple of, of weeks and, and maybe months ahead is is what what happens with those resources, because that's a, a lot of money for that region uh, over there. So let me let me go backwards for one second, because I think I think this might be uh, some information that, that not everybody has. 
the oil fields that are there, you're saying that the revenue stream from that supports the Kurds. Right. So it, are they the ones who control those oil resources? And how much of getting control of those oil resources is the reason that that Assad's regime is, is going after the Kurds or that Russia is moving in? So I, I guess mean, my, my short question is, is this all about oil? And were we trying to help the Kurds keep that? I don't think it's all about oil. It is a, certainly a strategic asset that is very important to the Syrians, but it's also been very important to the Kurds. The Russians, of course, would also like to have access to those oil fields as well. So, uh, you know, I think um, I don't I don't know that there was a specific design in any of these machinations to get, uh, to, you know, to get these oil fields uh, on behalf of Assad or Putin or anyone else. But I do think that there is some. Um, now there is definitely an American acknowledgement that with the change in our posture there, uh, which had kind of kept that region stable and kept those oil fields from being, uh, you know, subject to um, attack by other forces, I think this is, um, you know, this is one of the things that is going to be addressed addressed by the administration. They don't want to give up, um, you know, the. They don't want that that oil to fall into anyone else's hands. They want it to continue uh, to be secured and to benefit the, you know, the SDF in that region. So that's my understanding, and I think you know that'll be what questions really get raised over the next several weeks here as we watch this um, this kind of new posture in the region unfold. Well, and remember when when this all first happened, and there was all this uh, confusion about why the sudden policy shift. Trump made some cryptic reference to the oil fields are secured. So I, I think this probably has been front and center in his mind in, in this whole operation. Very so well could me, be. Let me ask you this, Jeff, and I just want to bring it back to a domestic front for a second. In the, in the, the partisan debates between all of this, was there any pushback on the Democratic side on how Trump... Uh, moved forward with this raid? I, I don't think there was, I, I don't recall hearing any pushback on the raid. Or, I, or the, on, the pushback people... was all on the policy shift uh, on, on the troops working with the Kurds in Syria. Yeah, and the dynamic that's in place now is, is trying to compare and contrast Obama and Trump and how they both uh, sort of you know, present this type of information to the world. Um, you know, Democrats would argue that Obama was restrained, and sober, uh, and and um, you know, not uh, n nothing flagrant in his remarks. And they would argue, Democrats, I, I think, would argue that Trump was boastful and um, and you know, blustery and took forty eight minutes to tell us ten minutes worth of information. Uh, and and so it. Now the the outrage now is kind of in all of these mannerisms that people uh, find so polarizing with the president. Now his, his fans obviously love it, um, which is why he does it, and probably because it's it suits his personality. But um, that you know that's where the argument is now. I think that I think that everybody was very supportive of this raid. Is very thankful that we got this guy who was an absolute horrible. Uh, human being. Uh, so now we kind of move on quickly to, well, what do we think about these two very different presidents and how they, how, and how they handled these situations. 
And and does his his bluster take anything away from the conversation that should be happening around the the, the troops who actually executed the mission? Well, of Jeff? course, he he doesn't want any story to be about anyone besides himself, and so he he's willing to be boastful and blustery to stay at the center of attention, and he he doesn't give a rip about giving anyone else credit. Well, I think if you uh, if you really look at the body of work uh, for the last three years, uh, there's some some truth to that. Uh, President Trump is not one to share credit. <laughs> so, one one sort of final question here on on this situation is uh, the fact that he was found in northern Syria. Does that does that prove that ISIS is active in northern Syria, and does that indicate that we should be uh, keeping troops there, or is that just where he happened to be hiding? I would argue that it, it, it suggests that we need to stay there with the, the sort of the same uh, force projection that we've had, which is not a, not a lot of troops. It's a lot of very high-end trainers and special operators uh, who have integrated very well with these you know, Kurdish forces who are there. And that has been, I think, the secret to maintain some stability in that region. Um, so it, it definitely argues for a continued presence in, in the region. Um, the fact that he was there is, you know, in the, in the area that he was, which is not really an area that were controlled by the Kurdish uh, forces. Um, it, it, it seems to me that all these guys, when they go hide somewhere, whether it's Saddam Hussein or Bin Laden, they're all looking for kind of the most remote, lawless, uh, ungovernable places on the planet. And northwestern Syria happens to fit that profile pretty well. And, and it, it at one point was, um, you know, under their influence. And so clearly he had people there who were assisting in his protection. Jeff, any any last thoughts on this? Well, I mean, look, there there are bad characters in a lot of those lawless places that Dave was just talking about. Uh, and, you know, this this kind of goes back to something that, that Trump campaigned on. And, um, you know, I'm not one to give Trump a lot of credit, uh, but, you know, he, he basically said he wanted to get out of all these entanglements overseas. He wanted to bring um, uh, troops home. He wanted to stop being the world's police force. Um, that has consequences, but like that is a worldview, and you got to give him credit for that. That like the challenge here in Syria is if if you don't want the United States to be the police, you're basically saying, well, we'd prefer if the Russians did it. And so, it, it's not just it, it's kind of like when you're faced with a decision at the polling place, uh, you're not voting just on a referendum on one candidate. You're choosing one or the other, and so in these complicated foreign policy matters it's not just that we we want to get the united states out of something it's who's going to take their place and not having that second view or that longer view about who's going to take their place is really i think what's at issue here and and where trump is um, hurting america's interests by kind of sticking to his campaign philosophy yeah we kind of touched on this last week it's most important thing in a situation like this is looking at who benefits as a way to evaluate the real, you know, policy outcomes. And clearly, uh, all the wrong people 
benefit from our reduced profile in that region. Uh, Jeff's right that he did campaign this way. He told us he was going to do it. He tried to do it uh, a year ago, which is why uh, the Secretary of Defense resigned. Um, the guardrails that kind of were set up around him with, uh, you know, the, the former chief of staff and, and you know, the, this, you know, Bolton and, and all these other folks, it just eventually he just was going to shake, shake free of the, of the, uh, uh, you know, of the, he's, he's going to get rid of the bridle and kind of get the bit in his teeth and run. And this is, this is the, this is the consequence. This is the outcome. So I, I have one more question on, on this because uh, just as, as you guys are talking here. So how much of, of this is Trump going to utilize in a reelection advertising campaign, right? Taking credit <laughs> for this. Uh, how much traction is he going to get out of utilizing it? I guess I'm assuming that he's going to utilize it. And, and, you know, Jeff, maybe we'll start with you. How do the, uh, the Democrats, you know, as they're, as they're fighting against him, except that he was at the helm when it happened, but he doesn't really get the credit. Well, uh, to answer your first question first, he's going to use this every possible way that he can. Um, that the Trump operation loves digital advertising. They love Facebook advertising. I think they are going to flood Facebook um, with images. Uh, the, the president hinted today that he wanted to release the video. He wants to release the video because he wants to use it in his campaign. Um, that's that's why he wants to release the video. So I, we'll see this all the time. Um, as soon as something um, bad happens to him, he'll he'll bring this video out and try and find some new angle to talk about it. It's um, you know there, this is going to be a uh, you know one of the one of the arrows in their quiver going forward. Well, I'm going to do a little both siderism here because obviously the Republicans had a lot of issues with Obama and the Syrian red line, which, by the way, is, you know, you can kind of trace right back, you know, to that same part of the world for some of the problems that are, you know, they, they just fester and fester and fester. Uh, anytime anybody had a foreign policy complaint about President Obama, you know, the, the answer was, well, he killed bin Laden. I mean, this is going to be a mantra for Trump. I can't wait to hear the rally stories that he starts telling about this. It's going to get embellished every time. And, you know, it'll be now a, probably an eight or 10 minute feature of these rallies that he does around the country. Um, and I am quite certain that over time he'll, he'll, he'll find ways to, to make it more interesting, more embellished. Uh, you know, who knows, maybe the campaign will get the dog as a mascot now. I, I mean, I don't know what's what's in store, but I can tell you for sure that this will be a daily feature. Jeff's right about the advertising, but he's also right. You know, we're, It's also true that, you know, Trump will use this as a, just almost an everyday uh, talking point. Uh, it'll become part of the show, part of the act uh, at these rallies, and people will just absolutely eat it up. Okay, so let's move on to a little bit of hope. Uh, Jeff, you shared this New York Times article with us called Centrism is Cancelled, written by Audra D.S. Birch. Uh, I think there's some really interesting points in there. Two that struck me were, uh, one, a, a quote by the author, only 39% of adults can name all three branches of government. And I think that leaves us a little ill-prepared. 
And the other was a quote by the subject of, of her article, Mr. Dyer. Uh, and he says, I think social studies teachers are hesitant to teach controversial topics uh, past and present due to hyperpolarization or pushback from the parents, which I think also leaves us a little ill-prepared. So uh, Jeff, let's start with you. What, what was it that caught your eye on this article? Well, uh, obviously, the, the headlines saying centrism is canceled is, is topical since we just started this podcast on the subject. But uh, it, it shouldn't be a remarkable story that makes the New York Times when, when a middle school teacher uh, has kids assigned to, to uh, two different points of view about a current news story to actually have a, an academic debate. And so they, they are taking the case of the Trump uh, impeachment inquiry and and some of the students have to be the uh, Democrats who are who are pursuing uh, charges impeachment charges and then some of the students are uh, tasked with defending the president and uh, they're just assigned these roles and they may not agree with them but they have to they have to understand all sides of it and it's just kind of funny to me that this is so novel and uh, outrageous that it merits a story in the New York Times. So how, how would we culturally start to make it less remarkable for things like this to happen? Well, I think, I think the, the fear for a lot of teachers would be that uh, if, they, if they go down this path and they pick something that is so politically charged that uh, one of the students or one of the students' parents will take to Facebook or Twitter and start making a big deal of this, and then they're going to have to have a, a meeting with the administration and justify how they're how they're handling this whole issue, and it and it just becomes a big to do and not really worth it. Um, and you know, you would think in an academic setting uh, that you could do something like this that's topical, that's that's you know, going to command a lot of news attention, uh, certainly during this semester, uh, if not for a while after. Um, but, you know, f too many people throw their hands up and say it's too hard. We're not going to do it. So, so Dave, what's, uh, what's your take on this, on this little news bit? Well, I was actually, I, I take, I take Jeff's point on how this should not be the kind of story that it is, but these are the times that we live in. I was heartened by, you know, the, the approach being taken by this teacher, um, you know, th these kids are going to, it's going to demystify uh, sort of people who they might disagree with. And that's part of why we're, I think, doing this show. Uh, Jeff and I can fight in campaigns and fight on Twitter, but we can also try to understand where each other is coming from and look for ways to, you know, to to sort of have a more productive and creative dialogue about some things. And I know, you know, we're going to be doing things on healthcare and, and the budget and, and, and all of that in the future while we're also paying attention to these, you know, breaking news events that are, that are taking place at, you know, breakneck speed. But I, I do think it's, it's really helpful to have, uh, you know, an environment like this where a teacher does, uh, does the best they can to try and demystify, uh, you know, the, the sort of outrage politics and oppositional politics that we that we see just that kind of takes over 
our 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 waking understanding of of politics. And I think a lot of that is just reflected on Twitter. It's it's reflected, of course, on cable news. Uh, but I was encouraged reading it that you know at least some students are going to get a chance here to learn how to have a real conversation. Yeah, I I agree. I I think in this you know there's a there's a big push to uh, shut down or not listen to opinions that are different from whatever opinion a person may hold. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's great that, that this school is doing that. It should be less remarkable than it is. So now that we're on the topic of these impeachment hearings, uh, there seems to be an issue from the democratic uh, side, sorry, from the Republican side that everything's being held in secret, right? But in the investigation phase, isn't that sort of how it would normally start? So, so Dave, do you want to kick us off on this one and, and sort of walk us through what the problem is from the Republican side, and then maybe we can find a little middle ground here? No, there's nothing new under the sun. If you listen to what Trey Gowdy said about the Benghazi hearings you know, a few years ago and how the Democrats were screaming about uh, them being held in, in secret, we've just basically taken... Uh, we've just taken the argument and flipped it exactly 180 degrees. Um, and it, it does appear now that um, there was an announcement today, we're taping this on Monday, that the Democrats are going to try to hold a vote as early as Thursday on uh, basically formalizing and, and agreeing on rules for uh, the process. So uh, that would include, um, you know, uh, opening up the hearings. It would include due process for the president having his uh, attorneys being able to sit in on on uh, hearings and and I think you know we're moving in that direction I, I think the outrage over process was uh, something that Republicans kind of had to fall back on because they didn't have a lot to say about the actual uh, facts, facts that are coming yeah. into the that are coming into the your public understanding particularly if you look back at Bill Taylor's testimony and so the White House has not done I I complained about this last week, the White House has done a terrible job, uh, you know, tr trying to coach their supporters, people who want them to succeed on, you know, how to counter these arguments about the quid pro quo, about Giuliani running basically a shadow State Department operation. Um, th they haven't given any good content for Republicans to, you know, to latch on to and run with. So they're going to bitch about they're going to bitch about process. And, you know, it is, it is of course, interesting. Most people roll their eyes because, you know, the same things that, that Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and others and Schumer might have been saying a few years ago in Benghazi are the exact same things that you're, you know, you're seeing um, Matt Gates and, and other Republicans screaming about now. It's just they've just decided to switch jerseys on this it's a good way to describe it and you know lawyers always say when when you have bad facts in a case you argue the law and when you have bad law you argue the facts and and that's kind of what dave was getting at here uh, you know first remember a couple weeks ago way back in the dark ages um uh the president and his surrogates were complaining about the whistleblower and the whistleblower um you know, we was anonymous and why won't the whistleblower come forward? And this is all hearsay. Well, then, of course, uh, fast forward in the last two weeks and you had the president admitting uh, what he said on the call and you have his chief of staff confirming that there was a quid pro quo. So 
you know, we just didn't, we don't hear about the whistleblower anymore because Trump himself and his chief of staff kind of superseded uh, their argument against the whistleblower. And I think you'll see the goalposts move in this process. And, you know, what's interesting about what, what Speaker Pelosi is doing here is uh, also like that famous saying, well, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And the Republicans are asking for a transparent process and Pelosi's willing to give it to them. Uh, and if they get what they're asking for on the process, they might ultimately have to talk about the facts and the circumstances or what are going on. And those are really bad. They're bad for the president. They're bad for Giuliani. They're bad for Mulvaney. Um, they should be very careful about, you know, complaining too much about process because if this thing becomes wide open, uh, then they're going to have to deal with the, with the facts. And, and that's, that's a bigger problem. So Dave, on the, on the Republican side, are there, is there a faction that is interested in finding out the truth, uh, and not quite so worried about the process or, or is it all pretty, pretty clear down partisan lines? Uh, well, Will Hurd comes to mind. Um, I, I definitely think there are Republicans who want to know what the facts are and what the truth is. Um, I, I do think the, you know, the White House needs to. I mean, there are several ways they could go with this. Even with bad facts, they could say, "Well, the president <clears throat> um, was told by, you know, the State Department and the." you know, general counsel and his national security advisor that this was, uh, you know, common practice and that, you know, he, he didn't know that what he was doing in trying to get uh, Ukraine to investigate Burisma was actually a, um, you know, a, a, an attempt at meddling in the elections. Uh, so he was just poorly informed or, or whatever. They could, they, I mean, there, there are a number of roads they can go down. They could also go down the road, which I kind of think is probably the most uh, the most effective argument, which is, hey, why put the country through an impeachment? Uh, we're going to vote down. We're going to vote down the impeachment. We're going to send it to the voters. I mean, Mitch McConnell has the uh, Merritt Garland example uh, that when the voters are going to have a say and it's impending, it's coming soon. Um, we should just leave it up to them because we trust the voters to make decisions about their leadership more than we trust. Uh, more than we trust a partisan political process in Congress. So, like, that's what I would be trying to position uh, towards, uh, because I, I don't. I read all 15 pages of the Bill Taylor testimony. Um, everything that we've seen come out so far really does kind of corroborate what was in the whistleblower's report. Uh, the, nothing that has happened uh, here is uh, is is good for the president. So, uh, you know, they're going to have to switch to a different strategy. And um, I think the strategy ought to be, you know what, uh, the voters need to decide this and, 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 and make a ruling. It'll be a, lot, uh, it'll be a lot easier for the country if that's what happens as opposed to, a, you know, kind of a partisan knife fight between the House and the Senate. But by the so, way, Lou, it, it's, kind yeah. of fun, it's kind of funny and ironic that uh, somehow Dave was able to read all 15 pages of this testimony, yet the Republicans in Congress think that this is a secret process and no one knows what's going on. <laughs> how, how, how could you reconcile those two things? Uh, fake news. You're fake news, Jeff. You Dave, are fake news. <laughs> Dave, do you have some sort of um, 
uh, secret access. clearance Magi- that, I have magic that Congress doesn't know about, or do you just have the internet? Maybe we and should they get a bunch of these Republicans in Congress to join Dave in Iowa and Colorado, uh-huh. and then uh, <laughs> then he can fill them in on what's going on. I am an expert at the Google machine, and I was able to find all of this information, and I read it all. And okay. uh, the facts are not good, and so I do think that there needs to be <laughs> another uh, another approach taken here by Republicans. So, as a as a quick public service announcement to any politicians who have decided to listen to our show, uh, Google will Google. help you find all the information that uh, apparently people are hiding from you. So, uh, just, to, just to tie this one off, Jeff, um, are you still uh, standing on the side that impeachment is the way to go? Not letting it, not necessarily waiting for it to go to the voters, uh, and and continuing down this path to to push Trump out of office before the election. Yeah, and just you know, as we talked about before, my my position for the last three years, when this subject would come up, I thought it was dumb. I I thought it was wrongheaded. I thought that um, actually impeachment was too good for Trump. That the the best way to deal with him would be to beat him at the election for the second time and to beat him in the electoral college for the first for time. For the first time. And, uh, but, but then when this Ukraine stuff uh, popped up, it, it, it was a game changer because uh, what he did was so beyond the pale. Um, and it was exactly uh, what the Mueller investigation was trying to figure out if it happened in 2016. And so he survives... <laughs> The, the whole Mueller report uh, because there wasn't conclusive evidence that he colluded with the Russians. But so then he uses leverage against the Ukrainians to try and dig up dirt on Joe Biden. So like he can't help himself but to go down the same path again. And I think just as a constitutional matter, the, the House had to take investigative action. They had to see where this goes. And, you know, now we have this 15 page testimony from Taylor, which which is pretty damning, and we'll see where the process goes from here. Well, Jeff, would you, would you agree that, uh, assuming that the Senate does, uh, does acquit the president, do, do you think there's a benefit then to having gone through this process as a way to basically... Uh, you know, say, hey, stop it, you know, and, and it and maybe it puts a stop to other machinations that could have been, you know, going on with the Chinese or, or, or whatever. Is, is there something about, you know, just the fact that all of these things are starting to surface and people are looking at this uh, in a, in a, in kind of a, a more serious way, uh, could it have maybe a stifling effect on, uh, you know, other plans that might have been afoot to, you know, to, to get people to, to do things to, you know, investigate Biden or, you know, what have you, whatever, whatever other goals there might have been out there. Well, you know, it, it does have a chilling effect on your activities when you're working in the White House and you have a personal lawyer who is advising you on what documents you need to keep and what documents uh, you can um, delete um, and when your depositions are going to be about what you knew and and when you knew it, uh, yeah, I think I think it does. the The challenge, of course, with this operation is that um, uh, the president doesn't trust anyone inside the government, so he relies on people like Rudy Giuliani, who really don't have any uh, regulators on their on their actions or or um, 
what they're chasing. And so, you know, now that Rudy's had to hire a lawyer, I guess it might slow him up a little bit. But um, I, I think that does have a chilling effect to go through this process. So maybe the sunshine that is kind of afforded from the inquiry itself, the hearings, and then the trial in the Senate um, has a benefit to uh, you know, that maybe normalizes things a little bit in terms of what uh, activities are coming out of the White House, State Department, or well, it the certainly increases the awareness of the sensitivity of a lot of these things for the people who are closest to the president. And, you know, Dave, you've been around these kinds of candidates before and, and around presidents. You know, you, you kind of get in this bubble and, and you, you lose track of kind of what what people are thinking on the outside or how this might go. You just feel like you're, you're, what you're doing is right. And uh, clearly, we've had a situation where what they've been doing is wrong. And so hopefully this brings a little awareness to that. Yep, I don't disagree with that. Okay. Although I have to say that, uh, you know, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of people in campaigns on six presidential campaigns. And, um, you know, I've never met anyone who would have uh, anything other than the appropriate reaction when, you know, when they see a foreign government, you know, coming forward with an offer of help. Uh, but to just basically alert the FBI. So I just like that we really are in kind of a weird, uh, a weird place here because the, 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 the many campaigns I've worked on and the hundreds of people that I've worked with in campaigns, uh, you know, I just don't know any of them that would have behaved in a way that, that we're seeing right now uh, revealed by some of this testimony. Well, and, and to that point, it, it is a good point. Um, you know, I'm so old, I worked on the Gore campaign and remember, the Gore campaign got a brown manila envelope delivered to it with a videotape of George W. Bush's debate practice, and they turned it over to the FBI. They didn't even think twice about it. Yeah, no, I, I can assure you that uh, the campaigns that I've worked on, uh, the, the response would have been the same. And even though you you know you play hard in these campaigns, there's a you know I mean they're they're called norms for a reason, you know, it's because behavior, uh, you know, that, that there, even when there aren't laws governing your behavior, uh, there should be, um, you know, sort of a common set of standards and practices that people sort of agree on. Otherwise you get kind of careening off in, you know, into this crazy world where you're, you know, you're, you're holding up money to a foreign government, getting them to investigate your political opponent. That's, I mean, that's, that's why we have norms and they're, they're meant to be, uh, they're meant to be followed. And in this case, uh, this is a president who just, uh, never met a norm. He didn't want to step disregard. On. So as, as we're talking about, uh, ethics in, in politics and campaigns, Facebook and a lot of social media is under the microscope for these false political ads. Um, where's the responsibility? Is, is it is it the responsibility of the campaign to correct uh, erroneous information that's out there? Is it the responsibility of uh, the, the American public to make sure that what they're reading is correct? Uh, and, and then to take that a step further, you know, the allegedly these state actors are putting out 
this false information, but there's also, you know, TV ads and, and in interviews where the politicians themselves are putting out this false information. So where, where does the liability for that come in? Uh, Jeff, you want to kick us well, off here? Sure, sure. What we do with television broadcasts, the, the publisher, the station, has, has a role to play in this, and, and, and they, they have to be uh, broadcasting things that are, are provably uh, true, or that there is at least uh, you know, some shred of evidence to make uh, a claim. And lawyers get involved, and they make arguments about language that are, that are in ads all the time. Uh, and right now, Facebook and, and other digital publishers are not holding themselves to that same standard. The government's not forcing them to do it. And so you can literally put anything in an ad on, on digital. Um, and I, I loved what the Warren campaign did to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, they, they ran an ad on Facebook that said Mark Zuckerberg endorsed Donald Trump. And of course it's not true, um, but Facebook wouldn't take the ad down because you can say anything on Facebook. It just shows how outrageous that's, that standard or lack of standard is. And, you know, we've got a model that's not perfect, but at least it works on, on television. They should at least be held to that standard. So is it, is it almost a suggestion that these digital outlet, outlets like Facebook should be treated more like a journalistic outlet? And, and does that create I hate to use the term, but does that create a little bit of a slippery slope? Considering well, the tri- the anybody triggers, can post the on trigger's it. not journalism. For broadcasters, the the trigger is that you're using public airwaves, and because you're using public airwaves, um, that that's how the federal government gets involved in regulating what's what's done over those airwaves. And and I think, you know, we just we have to decide whether the internet is a is a public utility or not like airwaves. And if it is, then the federal government has to step in and say, okay, there's some rules about how you're going to do this. You know, for a long time, we've said, hey, we're, we're not going to put constraints or limits on the internet. That's what's going to foster innovation and all this other stuff. But, you know, the innovation has, has kind of gotten out of hand when it comes to political speech. And, and we have to decide, are we going to draw a line or not? And and is that going to apply just to paid advertising on on sites like Facebook, or is that going to apply to uh, if a politician puts a video of themselves saying something that's on their personal Facebook? I, I think you got to start with paid, because that's that's what has the most impact and the most reach. If a candidate wants to put something out of them of themselves saying something outrageous. I'm okay with that because at least they're held accountable. The real problem is not when a candidate says something. The real problem is when you have some third-party group that says something on behalf of a candidate, but you don't know who's funding it, you don't know who's behind it, uh, and they have they have huge amounts of resources, and then, then they can say things that aren't true, um, and you have no way to gauge who the speaker is. So, Dave, I want to get your take on this because I think there's a – you know, there's often um, a lot of commentary from the right that social media is the domain of the Democrats. So how does this apply on, on your side? Well, if you look at Facebook, the top 10 most shared stories that relate to politics, I think on average each day about eight of them are coming from the conservative side. So I, I like I don't get the 
conservatives talking about censorship on on social media because they literally dominate the conver- the political conversation on Facebook. This is a slippery slope, at least in the in the sense that uh, you know it, it was very easy to regulate three broadcast networks um, and have the FCC just basically um, you know take a look at every ad. If a campaign thought another ad uh, an ad coming from their opponent was out of bounds, they would send a letter authored by a lawyer, as Jeff said, and then a decision to be made about whether or not that ad would would come down. Um, now you've got literally you know. I mean, just thousands and thousands of places where political speech is, is emanating from. You've got all kinds of different platforms from Facebook and Instagram. Obviously, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are, are the big ones, but there's a lot more than that. And, and uh, you know, I think getting a handle on this in a, in a regulatory manner is going to be incredibly difficult. I don't know how I don't know how operable it is, and I really haven't seen a proposal that um, that I've understood well enough to make much sense of it. But I do think we're gonna it's gonna happen eventually um, because uh, I think Zuckerberg is dead wrong. You know, they're they they are not just a platform; they are in fact a media uh, and content uh, entity, and they're they you know they they so there there is some responsibility borne by uh, the folks at Facebook, you know, just like, just like, uh, you know, we don't want to see Russians buying ads on Facebook as they did in 2016. We don't want to see, you know, I mean, campaigns have to play by a set of rules that everyone can agree on and that everyone can follow. And, uh, it's, it's coming. I don't think it's coming in time for the 2020 election, but th- this will have to be regulated. Um, you know, I can't put a piece of direct mail out which is what I spend a lot of my days doing unless I can back it up with a, you know, with the quotes and the, and the evidence and research to, to support the claim. Now, you know, some claims are more outrageous than others. And, you know, we've all been, we've all been in campaigns where, you, you know, you, you kind of stretch things quite a bit, but if, you know, when you're going to the, to, to saying outright false things and you're putting money behind it, uh, it, it has to be, uh, able to be regulated at some point, and I, I, I don't know how I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if we can get both sides together on this, uh, but I think there's going to have to be some pain inflicted on both parties before they're willing to come to the table and figure something out. So I, I think it's an interesting point, Dave, when you talk about just how many outlets there are. And so Jeff, if if we're going to start talking about Facebook and and Twitter and YouTube as media outlets that are beholden uh, to to these higher standards. Where's the cutoff point when there's a lot of smaller digital networks? They don't have the reach and the footprint of Facebook. They don't have the resources of Facebook. But is there a cutoff where these companies might also be uh, responsible in the same way? And and how does that sort of play in? Well, I, d- I don't know how you set up a, a scheme that that is fair, um, but it, it probably has to do with the use of the Internet. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not going to be an easy situation to resolve. And I don't know where you magically draw that line, but obviously there's two players that control about 80% of the market and that's Facebook and Google and everybody else is tiny. Okay. So, uh, we're, we're pretty close to wrapping up here. I just want to touch briefly on one last little topic. It's not so little, a touch of impending doom. So, 
uh, <laughs> about a year ago, the federal government was shut down. People were starting GoFundMes. Uh, employees had to resort to food shelters. They got evicted from their homes because they couldn't pay their rent. And while I'm sure none of these problems will occur to the president or most of the Congress, uh, a lot of these people who went through this were out protecting us, right? They were working without getting paid, whether it's the Coast Guard, the FAA, the FBI, DHS. So the question is, are we ready for a round two? Because November 21st, which is 18 workdays from now, uh, is, is pretty close. I mean, I guess in the world of politics and news cycles, it's decades away. But to, to us mere mortals, uh, 18 workdays is, is, uh, is pretty close. So uh, first off, Dave, is this, is this shutdown going to happen? Well, I always uh, think that at some point, uh, people will come to their senses and not allow it to happen. I'm a little concerned right now, given the the whole sort of impeachment uh, backdrop to all of this, uh, that someone might come up with the idea that this is one good way to distract from whatever is going on uh, with respect to impeachment at that point. I mean, you know, there, there's just, there's so much at stake. I I have to think that the adults, McConnell, Pelosi, uh, and 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 you know Mnuchin and others um, will try to you know, sort of separate the politics from all of this and and the the, the shutdown stuff. The, what drives me crazy about the shutdown kind of culture that we've had over the last several years is it's always these fringe players, uh, initially from the Tea Party, who you know who want to like basically play with fire and they don't have you know, they, there's no way they can get what they actually want. They just want to cause this huge rabble and, and, you know, make a big point. And what ends up happening is uh, real people end up sacrificing uh, so that they can make their point. And, you know, uh, but with, with, you know, with, with uh, Republicans now in charge of the Senate and the White House, I don't think there's nearly the kind of outrage over, big federal spending that there is when the Democrats are in charge. <laughs> Jeff likes to lecture me on that. So in fact, I, I, I just, I think it's uh, just one of those things that it's a distraction that um, I can't imagine who would think they could benefit from, uh, you know, kind of pushing another government shutdown. This is a terrible time to do it going into the holidays. I, I just, you know, I feel like it'd be a, a massive mistake and there are, there've got to be adult voices at the table that can that can thwart any attempt by, you know, someone trying to use shutdown as a distraction or as a as a way to make some political point that um, you know, somehow will come through it without it. So you you make an interesting point that this is happening a little more frequently. Um, Jeff, can you help us understand uh, a little bit what processes are in place that allow uh, a president to weaponize this budget on such a much more regular basis? Well, as Dave said, it's not just the president. It's it's any member that that thinks um, they're, they're going to get an advantage uh, by holding up the process, uh, an advantage for some unrelated legislation or something about the budget. It, it's just more of a more of a hammer and a hardball tactic than anything else. And so 
the reason why we won't have a shutdown in 18 days is because nobody thinks that they're going to have a political advantage in a shutdown. And the reason why we would have one in 18 days is somebody thinks it's going to help them politically if there's a shutdown. So that's that's kind of where it is. Last time Trump thought a shutdown helped him and he didn't care. So he went ahead with it and he didn't care how long it was going to last because for him, it was just leverage and posturing. He 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 doesn't value uh, anything beyond that. So, so that that's why do, we don't know where we're going to be in 18 days yet, because we don't know if there's somebody that really thinks it's to their advantage to do this. Do you uh, do you think we're going to end up in a shutdown 18 days from now, or or you think we're going to skirt by this one? I think we're going to skirt by it because uh, even Trump uh, knows that he really can't anger Republicans right now uh, because the Republicans mean everything to him in this impeachment process. And he can push them and he can bully them around a little bit, but he can't fundamentally uh, make them angry. And he, and, he, and he started to in Syria, which is maybe the other reason why they were so aggressively going after Baghdadi because he needed a victory badly. Um, and so I, I don't think he's going to push Republicans to the brink. So we're, we're uh, balancing between uh, not pushing Republicans uh, or pushing them so that we get a distraction from impeachment, I, yeah. I guess, is, is where yep. we are. That's a pretty good summary. <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, is, there is so much precision in what we are trying to predict here. You, I mean, <laughs> this is really uh, this is precise work we're doing here. All right. Well, we'll we'll pick this one up uh, when it happens or doesn't happen. Okay, uh, that's it for uh, for this week. I want to thank Jeff and Dave for joining us. Uh, thanks, guys. Hopefully, we've been able to share some perspective and information with everybody. Thanks for joining us, and please be part of the conversation. We're on Twitter at CentristPod or theamericancentrist.com. Let us know what you think about what we've been talking about, and as we look at this impending government shutdown. Are you going to be affected by it? Somebody you know going to be affected by it. Let us know the real-world implications of some of these decisions. As always, share, subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.